Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, as the World Cup is now underway, there have been plenty of headlines both on and off the field. We're here to talk about what we've seen from the games, as well as provide more insight about some of the controversies and headlines coming out of Qatar. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, I want to say, how are you doing? But I know that you've just been watching the World Cup for the past like week and a half. So, is that is that pretty, is there anything else besides just fully into the World Cup? No, I mean it, it's like one of those things where I I realize around this time of year that like my personality becomes defined by sports. And like, if people ask me how I'm doing or like ask what I've been up to and I like sit and think and I'm like, did I do anything non-sports related this week? I'm like, uh, I watched a movie one time maybe and I went to work, but like even some of my work is sports related. So it's, it's bad. I mean, I will say the only, I'm getting up at 10 AM right now, basically every day, which is something that has not happened in a year and a half and that just demonstrates the 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 power that the world cup has on my life and uh my decision making so i think i think that that'll give you a little bit of an indicator of uh of how i'm doing which is it's just pretty well would you say that you've been more or less engrossed in it or about the same with it being during the holiday season as opposed to in the summer Ooh, i mean it's different now because last time I had a world cup was I was still in school. Mm-hmm. So like summer break gives you a lot of time to like, just kind of do your own thing and watch stuff as it is. It's, it's probably a little bit. It's, I think it's about equal. Honestly, I don't feel like there's a huge amount of change in terms of like the time frame of it necessarily. Um, but it does, it does feel different being around this time of year. It doesn't have the same like summer festival vibe that I've always like, connect to the world cup but anyway anyway i've been enjoying it we've there's lots of off-field stuff that we're going to get into that it's a strange tournament but i do feel like the soccer is at a level now where it's still it still feels world cup e you know mm-hmm. and i think that's a, i think that's a good thing have you, have you been having fun yeah i would say that i've well my family would say that i've done a good job this podcast might think i was actually doing a bad job of not watching sports like during thanksgiving like I didn't watch, I didn't watch a single soccer game on Thanksgiving Day, which oh, was oh. probably a benefit to my family, but a detriment to, you know, what I do on this podcast, for example. So, um, I was probably the opposite. Sorry, family. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I feel like um, I've gotten to watch, and with it being morning, like during the workday, that's made it pretty easy to just kind of mm-hmm. have it on a screen, but. Waking up, I, I've missed almost all of the 5 a.m. games, basically. Right. I haven't watched a single one. And then, especially with family in town, missed, you know, some. I, I, I've probably watched parts of, I would say probably half the games. Probably half. Mm-hmm. So, not, not as much as I would have done in the summer in the afternoon, I would say. Right. Much less than it would have been. Yeah, I think the time zone is a little awkward, honestly, for American viewers. I think it, it's decently well-suited for European viewers. And normally, like, a European World Cup, or especially, like, the Brazil World Cup, feels pretty doable. Like, there aren't any 5 a.m. kickoffs. That just doesn't happen. Right. Um, so it being that far east does kind of, I feel like, mess with our ability to watch. Like, 5 a.m. is just a brutal... I would just never wake up for that with my current sleep schedule, but that's just a brutal, brutal time to wake up for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, John, we're recording this, just people know, on a Wednesday. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this will come out probably Thursday or Friday. Uh, so what we just saw is today, this morning, was uh, France lose to Tunisia but still go through, and then Australia beat Denmark and go through. And Which is incredible. Maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But we do want to start with yesterday's result on Tuesday afternoon, the USA. We beat Iran 1-0. We advanced to the knockout round where we will play the Netherlands. And as a, as a U.S.-centric podcast... I think that it's important to start with start with the guys, the men of the USA. The and, men, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a cakewalk <laughs> to the round of sixteen. No, heart heart rates were elevated at times, I would say, but overall, um, yeah. How are we doing? How are we how are we feeling about about the uh, the red, white, and blue? I feel like we're doing much better than I thought we would. I did think we were going to make it out of this group by the time the tournament rolled around. You know, I looked at the group initially and I was like, I feel nervous about this. There are some potential banana skins here, but we ended up dealing with them much better than I thought we would have. We had an awkward run through the group stages, though, I think is the way I would put it. We had some excellent halves of football that looked really good. We clearly have young players that are determined to leave their mark on U.S. history books. We have players who are determined to fight for every result. And our midfield play and our aggression and our pressing, I think, is the best I've seen from an American team um, in my time watching. That being said, we talked about this a ton throughout each of the three games. We lack goal scoring threat in any kind of meaningful way. You know, I think back to the 2014 team with Clint Dempsey, who is obviously like just a commentator now and how just how dangerous he was all the time in 2014 and 2010. You know, even if he didn't score or Landon Donovan didn't score, you know, we had these excellent forwards who were, you know, capable of playing at a high level in Europe, you know, and we don't really have that on this USA team right now. And I think that that kind of, we suffered for that throughout these games in times where we had long periods of possession and looked really well, but couldn't like really put anything together to actually make, you know, goals appear on the scoreboard. And that ends up with us having really nervy finishes to games like that Iran game yesterday. We played so well in that first half, only got one goal. And then we basically were barely hanging on for the entire second half. Almost. It felt like, especially the last like half an hour. And I'm really pleased with how we got through and a lot of how we played, but I'm not left feeling like assured in this team, I guess is what I would say. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think like we've been the opposite of what I expected going into the tournament. Mm-hmm. I thought that going into the tournament, we would have a really, really potent offense, but be a huge liability defensively. And what's actually happened is we've only scored two goals in three games, but we haven't conceded a goal from open play. We've only conceded Mm -hmm. one goal from a penalty. So we have been really defensively sharp and against good offense, against good attacks as well. You know, against Gareth Bale and Dan James, against the England attack, which was filled with stars. Our defense has played excellent. Matt Turner's been excellent as well. But our offense really has struggled. Both of our goals kind of came from designed plays with lots mm-hmm. of movement and passing the the Tim Weah goal that Christian Pulisic slid him through and then the Christian Pulisic goal from across I feel like 
both of those goals were the result of good buildup and team play, which is kind of how we've played. We've been very good technically. We've had lots of little backheel flicks and overlapping runs. We have not had a guy who can just smash in a goal when mm-hmm. we when we need a goal. The, the closest threat we've had for that is Sergino Dest, who's been one of our best players, but um, even he has not had a real target. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, other than the goals we've scored, we haven't really forced a lot of saves. We haven't had a lot of shots on goal mm-hmm. or forced a lot of saves. We've been trying to to make the goals so beautiful as team goals that sometimes you just need a guy who can just go go make a goal out of nothing, and we haven't had that. I think the feature game, of course, was the game that we, we talked about on Black Friday against England. We talked about it, and knowing that it was going to be on the schedule, not just as a you know, big rivalry, but a chance for U.S. soccer to really grow in the States, being on a holiday in the afternoon when families were going to be together. I was able to get, you know, most of my family to sit down and watch mm-hmm. it. Um, probably about half of my, you know, we had 12 people. There were probably eight of us around the TV, so it did pretty good. Everyone seemed pretty tapped in. For people who really probably had never watched much soccer before, I felt pretty good about that. But, um, you know, I, I think we were hoping for a better game than we got in terms of, you know, it, it was not a game that I think would have inspired a love for soccer from someone no, who, who not. had not n- known about the sport before. But um, it did it did end up being a pretty big TV event, as, as you noted on our outline today. Yeah, yeah. USA England had about 15.3 million viewers on Fox, which the numbers, like the way they calculate everything is kind of complicated, it seems like. But I think it's the U.S. single network record um, for a men's soccer game in terms of viewers. Uh, it won't pass the overall viewership record in the U.S., which is the, for a men's game, that is, which is the 18 million that watched uh, USA-Portugal in 2014, according to Sports Media Watch. Uh, but still, that's a pretty that's a pretty sizable number of people tuning into that game. Um, you know, I've talked to, you know, random different friends that normally don't watch soccer who have been tuned into things who watched that game in particular, I think England USA is always just an event that inspires all kinds of people that don't aren't particularly invested in soccer just because it's like the the American Revolution derby, you know. You see it's it's all over the internet right now, which has been funny. Like in every kind of like sphere of the internet that I'm in, um US men's soccer right now is kind of just like randomly popping up its head and I think like like meme culture has latched on to uh, this group stage and I think I think it's like it's helped exposure a little bit so I, I really enjoyed that um, I do like you said I do wish you that it was a little bit of a better game than it was but I was impressed by how well we nullified England's offense because as we've seen in the other two group games when they really get moving it's very difficult to stop their momentum um, so I, I was really impressed with the way with how disciplined we are and I think that will serve us really well in our first game against the Netherlands. Yeah, we, we missed about three chances that we really should have scored. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pulisic, uh, Musa, and McKinney, and McKinney all missed yeah. chances that should have gone in. Um, but defensively, again, we were solid. They really only had a couple great chances. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a Mason Mount shot that got saved low, and then the other one was the was it the Maguire header that went just wide, or was it Kane on the header? 
toward the end. I forgot. I remember. I don't remember the exact um, chance you're talking a about. Header that that yeah. went just wide at the post. It was a Henry. Um, so again, like a pretty a pretty good result defensively. We let, we, we do want to talk about our next opponent, which is the Netherlands, who we play Saturday at 10 a.m. Uh, the World Cup is single elimination, so one game, winner goes on, no ties anymore. You know, very different from the group stage. And the Netherlands have been, I think, also somewhat inconsistent in this mm-hmm. World Cup. They've been good. They have a one of the standout players of the tournament, I think, who's really come onto the scene in uh, Cody Gapko. Is it Cody Gapko? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Cody Gapko, who has been sensational. He scored three goals. But they have some weaknesses as well. And I think before we before we expand to the rest of the world, let's talk a little bit about what to expect on Saturday. Yeah, I don't know. Have you watched much of them? I've watched part of their Ecuador game. I watched their opener against Senegal all the way through. And I guess like the highlights of the Qatar game. Um, they, I don't know, they're really weird. I, I don't, this is probably... I mean, as an indicator, they didn't make the 2018 World Cup and they're here this year and we're in pretty good form in qualifying. But I look at that squad and I'm not super impressed by a lot of what I see. Cody Gakpo has popped up with a lot of great goals in crucial moments. Like he broke through against Senegal in a game that basically was completely bereft of any actually like enjoyable attacking football throughout that game. And in the end, the Netherlands won 2-0 in that game. But I, I don't know. They sometimes struggle in establishing, like, attacking fluidity, it feels like. And it's not even necessarily that they feel super vulnerable. I think they play a lot with the five at the back. So it, they, they feel pretty defensively solid, kind of like we do. But it has felt a lot of the time in me watching them, like, again, in that Ecuador game, that they... Yeah, they just lack a little bit of fluency, especially up front. Cody has been good. Obviously, Frankie de Jong is quite good. But there just seems like there's kind of a, a lack of cohesion between their their midfield and their forwards. And I think that I think that's something that can play into our hands with how good our midfield is. Again, we have to convert our chances. But I do think that we can absolutely boss this game in midfield. Because Frankie, I don't know if Frankie's bossing this midfield right now on his own. So what the Netherlands have that we don't have is a goal scorer Correct. who scores multiple goals in, in the tournament. Um, they, the Netherlands have scored five goals and conceded one, as opposed to we've scored two goals and conceded one. So like, I, I don't think, I don't think, however, whatever you say about them not being very fluid, they, their offense is better than ours is. Mm-hmm especially having a guy like Cody Gapko who can actually, like like I said, just go score goals. Um, it doesn't have to be dribble, 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 pass, 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 pass. Sometimes you just, he, can, he can just go score a goal. Uh, Frank De Jong, I think, is pretty clearly going to be the best player on the field um, mm-hmm. in that game. Like they, they have the best player. They have the best goal scorer. They probably have the best defender. Still, I think Virgil's been pretty solid. Virgil van Dijk, who, you know, two years ago would have been definitively the best defender in the world. He's had a little bit of a slip up. But I, I, again, I, again, we, in our preview pod, I talked about this matchup and then I thought the USA would, would beat the Netherlands. I feel after having watched them, I feel less confident about that Mm -hmm. than I did before. Um, And it has less to do with the Netherlands, who I agree with you were. Like I, I think we knew when I said it that they were going to be talented but shaky. 
And that's exactly what they have been. But the USA have not been as good offensively as I thought they were going to be. And so that's where my hesitation is and why why I feel like revising my my opinion, I guess, for the sake of the fact that I've been pretty right on most things so far, I'm going to stay with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because I, I, you know, I haven't been wrong a whole lot in this tournament yet. So why not? But it's it's pretty clear that they have the best players in basically every area of the of the field. Yeah, I do feel I don't I'm not going into this game with really high expectations. But I am going into it expecting that we're going to go toe to toe with the Netherlands and not get blown out because I thought that I thought the England game we were going to get exposed after how we played against Wales in the second half. Um but this team showed that they can kind of raise their level to the opposition they're playing against. Um and I I don't think the Netherlands are a better team than England by any means. Um I expect this game to be very close. You know, if I was an unbiased outside observer, I'd probably guess the Netherlands win this game in extra time. Hmm. Um, hmm. I think is what I'd put put the money on. Probably a two one extra time game. I think it's going to be a one goal. I think the U.S. only wins this if it ends up being one nil. If the Netherlands can't find a way through, I think that's the only way the U.S. wins this. Just because of the way the U.S. has been playing. If the U.S. can score early, which they still haven't done this tournament really at all. No. Um, if they can score early, I think that's going to be huge. It would have been huge in the Iran game. The fact that we scored in the first half was crucial. But we're going to need to, we're going to need to find some kind of offensive gear to win this game. Um, we don't win this. This game doesn't go to penalties. You know, John, we have a really really good offensive player who hasn't played all that much. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that before we finish with the U.S. I, wh- why is Gio Reyna not playing? I have no idea. I've, I mean, I, I've I've tried to I read as much out of the interviews as I can. Um, at first, there was you know he has had injuries coming into this tournament playing for Borussia Dortmund, mm-hmm. but according to what is coming out of the USA team, injuries are not a concern for him. He made a uh, ten-minute substitution in the first game. Mm-hmm. I think he was on for about fifteen minutes of the second game against England, and did not feature at all in the game against Iran when we were still only winning by one goal. Um, Christian Pulisic came off at halftime in the third game, and mm-hmm. he was not the choice to go on. It was Brendan Aronson who was, who was, I guess, fine. Um, I think what people noticed in the first game against Wales is that when we made our first round of substitutions, it was actually Jordan Morris who came on instead of Gio Reyna. Jordan Morris is a aging MLS player who is, with no, with no offense, just not as good as Giorena. Right. Yeah. Um, it's been, it has been the baffling part of this USA team. No one seems to have a good explanation for it. And it, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. It, it's kind of concerning, honestly, because I, you have to wonder if there's something like wrong going on in like the coaching relationship or something. Like there were videos of the players arriving at the hotel yesterday and celebrating. And he just walks by with his headphones on, like clearly not participating. And you've yeah. just got to wonder, like, you know, it, it may be something to do with him. It may be something to do with the coach. Um, Bearhalter has been making very strange substitution decisions that I do not agree with in any way. Um, and Clint Dempsey clearly doesn't either. Mm-hmm. And I think, you, you know, I, I, I get that people... Bearhalter is a very similar manager to Southgate, I think, in that he gets good international results at times. And puts together a team that can grind out results at times 
but makes you feel incredibly uncomfortable a lot of the time while doing so and at times shackling his team with the decisions he makes um once it's up to him and not just the players to like manage the end of a game and i don't know you're just getting the feel with the situation that something something just doesn't feel right to me that he's not getting any minutes at all if he's saying that he's healthy and it's a coaching decision not to play him like what are you like you look at what haji wright did when he came on yesterday there was a clean breakaway haji wright was maybe like 1v2 but he had a clear shot on goal to put the game away at least force a save and get a corner and he just like passed the ball to the iranian goalie yeah and i'm like that's the sub you're making to put this game yeah. away right now as a player who's clearly not actually at this level like it just it just it doesn't feel right and it feels strange i think geo needs to feature in this game but we'll also see if pulisic is fit for saturday's yeah. game because that may be is. a big question mark he says he is but we'll see yeah. Um, I, I think Rana has to start. I think he has he's to. He's not going to start. There's no way he's going to start. I know he's not, but he has to. What I mean, you, surely what, he would, right? Like, what is, is he, he, you could make a really, really good argument that he is our, the USA's best player. It's, you know, top three, it, there's no question. He's a team, mm-hmm. he's one of our three best players. And he's played like a total of 20 minutes in this tournament. It makes, it makes right. just, doesn't make any sense. We'll be back next week. We'll talk about this result. If we yes, win, we we'll have another game. Uh, coming up after that should be amazing um yeah john let's let's kind of expand to the world uh mm-hmm. all the teams it is the world cup after all yeah we could talk about this kind of highlighting some moments or we could talk about this in terms of our expectations going in so if you if you remember what we said in the last podcast i wonder if there's anything that you said that you feel really really good about and then anything that you said that surprises you that maybe you got mm-hmm. wrong I feel pretty good about about my view on Spain and Germany in that group. Um, I really felt like Germany was going to be was going to struggle in this tournament, and their qualification is going down to the last day. They got a point against Spain and they lost to Japan, and that is in an incredible not great. game. Against in an incredible, Japan. incredible game. I will be so. Japan kind of shot themselves in the foot by losing to Costa Rica. Yeah. They could have progressed from this group with that win, and I, yeah. I, I would have been over the moon. But now they're going to have to get a result against Spain to, to survive that. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. I don't have high hopes for my, uh, I guess, my secondary fun team. But, um, but I, I still have hope for the, uh, for the Samurai Blue. I think all of our kind of... Uh, Belgium was a prediction I feel very good about. Mm-hmm. We both thought that Belgium was going to perform very badly. Ranked number one in FIFA rankings clearly does not mean a single thing. They are an aging side that can establish absolutely no fluency. Kevin De Bruyne in an interview called them too old to win the World Cup, and I inclined to agree. I think the golden generation for Belgium is over. I do think, though, that most of our favorites to progress far in this tournament have kind of held their own i've been surprised by france though Mm. i expected them to be solid but not as just generally good as they've been though they did they played a secondary squad to tunisia today and lost which just feels like a strange thing to do to like rotate your entire squad in the middle of the world cup like i feel like you want to give your starters fluency because they knew they were going to win the group so it doesn't matter but it's still that still was an odd it was an odd decision to me, and I feel like randomly losing a game at the end of the group stages doesn't like help your team chemistry very much. So 
So that was yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think if you were wrong, quote unquote, well, you're not not super wrong, but a little bit low on France. I think I was probably a little bit low on Portugal, mm-hmm. who have been better than I thought that they would be. Um, they're not perfect, yeah. uh, but they have advanced already through two games, which is a good result. Um, one of I think one of the two or three standout players of the tournament has been Bruno Fernandez, who had two assists in the first game, 100%. two goals in the second game. He has been absolutely immense. I guess I guess Ronaldo really hasn't been that much of a factor. He's he scored mm-hmm. one goal on a penalty. Um, he was subbed <laughs> off pretty early in the second game, and they were just fine without him. He desperately um, tried to claim, notably, his biggest contribution was trying to claim a goal that Bruno Fernandez scored that he did not touch even a little bit. If mm-hmm. anything touched the ball, it was like a single hair follicle, and he ran of his, away. Cl- of his very sprayed down hair. <laughs> yeah, and he, he he ran away acting like he'd just won the World Cup final with like the goal of his life. And you look at all the replays, and you're like, bro, you didn't, you didn't even touch it. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, like you said, I feel really great about my my Belgium take. I said that they would not mm-hmm. make it out of the group, and they are not going to make it out of the group. Yeah, that that was a good call. I think Morocco may make it out of the group, which is stunning because Canada is not going to make it out. Well, if if um if Croatia beats Belgium, then Morocco can lose and still go through. Right, which yeah, that's, like, a, that's yeah. a stunning result. No the only one... thing that matters is Croatia beating Belgium, which is going to happen. Like, I did I, enjoy. I, oh, go ahead. No, I, just, I feel as confident as anything that Croatia will beat Belgium. Oh, yeah. I did really enjoy um, Canada's coach's banter about uh, beating Croatia, and then Croatia just absolutely walloped Canada. You know, as much as I like Canada, I was like, don't talk crap in the press that you're not going to be able to back up. Yeah, that's exactly true. And then he got he kind of got dunked on in some, in some magazines <laughs> later on. That was, that was a tough look for him. Uh, John... We both put Argentina in our top, top tier. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on to the off-the-field stuff, I would love to talk a little bit about how we feel about Argentina. They lost a, a shocking opening game to Saudi Arabia in which Saudi Arabia had only two goals on target and scored two goals, second of which was an incredible goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Argentina largely dominated the game but only managed to score in the opening 10 minutes on a messy penalty. But Argentina follows it up with a pretty comprehensive... 2-0 win over Mexico. Um, they neutralized Mexico very effectively. Messi scored again from open play. Yeah, I, I think really, really different Argentina teams in the first and second game. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that the Mexico game was a course correction and that Argentina okay. is going to be fine. You have a little bit more concern and I'd love to just spend a couple minutes talking about what we think about Argentina. So, my concern always is, one, I, I, th- I want Argentina to do well in this tournament. I don't always feel that way about Argentina, but with this being Messi's last hurrah and being a fan of Messi overall, I really like the idea of them going out in the group stages and like Saudi Arabia progressing would disappoint me, honestly. Like I, I do want to see them do well. I do have some question marks, though. That Mexico game was really ugly. Uh it did feel like they nullified Mexico pretty well, but it, it, I didn't come away from that game feeling like really a believer in this Argentina's team ability to beat really good teams. Messi, you know, came up with a moment of magic like he always does mm-hmm. in these moments when his country needs him. Um, and the question is how many of those moments of magic, I think, does Messi have in him this tournament? 
I think that's the question that this is going to ride on. He, he, they're going to play against Poland later today. Um, so by the time this comes out, we'll already know whether Argentina's, you know, had what it takes to get make it through. I think it's totally possible to lose, as it's happened before. Spain lost their opening game in 2010 and still won the World Cup. It's totally possible to recover from that, make a good run. Um, it wasn't like Argentina played particularly badly in that Saudi Arabia game. It was one of the greatest upsets of all time, and it may have just been a fluke. You know, it just things just didn't go their way. They could have scored in the pre-VAR era. They probably could have scored five goals. Yeah. Um, so, so I think I think you're right in the sense that like their that Mexico game may have just been the grinded out result that they needed to get themselves back on track, and they may be okay after this. But I haven't seen enough from them to say this is a team that's parts are as well drilled and oiled as maybe I thought they were. So I don't, they're still good, but I'm, they'll really have to fight, I guess, to beat a team like Brazil. And I don't know that they will. Yeah. Again, this podcast will come out and we'll know if they advance or not. So don't spend too much time dwelling on things that will either be proven right or wrong very quickly. What I will say though, is I, I think you view their reliance on Messi as a concern which is understandable. Soccer is a very team-oriented sport. There's 11 players. A one individual player can only have so much impact. But I'll just say this has been a very excellent version of Messi. Mm-hmm. After That's a really true. bad year last year for PSG, he has been great for his club, and he has been great for his country this year. Messi does not seem like he's aged that much. He runs a little bit less, but on the ball, on the attack, he is as good, I think, as he's been um, ever in a World Cup. And so, if, I mean, if you were going to pick one player to rely on in this yeah. tournament, oh, absolutely, it's probably either Kylian Mbappe or or Leo Messi. Um, he he has been immense, and so I, I I don't view that as a huge concern. I think that they're going to beat Poland, and I think that they're going to still. I, I think they're still in my four. I guess if I was going to look at my top tier, the only thing I would do different is I would add Spain to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I had four. I had France, England, Brazil, Argentina. I would I would keep those four. And I would add Spain would be my only difference. Right. I think I agree. I think I fully expect them to be Poland in advance. Um, I think Argentina is just the big team that I am going to be tapping every so often and say, you know, against a smaller team, there could be an upset that could happen again. Like yeah. it's just that's my only take. Well, that's a that's a good survey of the on the field stuff. Mm-hmm. When we come back, we'll be in the knockout round, so there'll be it'll be a lot more excitement to go. But John. As we knew, this podcast has documented a lot of the off the field stuff um, leading up to the World Cup, and it has continued. It has. Um, let me just say, if you want to hear more after we recorded, um, I thought that the Guardian did a great job in their Football Weekly podcast doing some uh, specials at the end of their preview podcast mm-hmm. about some of the off the field stuff in great detail and depth. Uh, stories about the migrant workers, about the corruption in terms of this tournament being given to Qatar, in terms of the LGBTQ community in Qatar, highly recommend those podcasts. So they said that they might release those all as one big episode at the end of the World Cup. Um, listen to that, I would highly recommend. Um, things that have happened since we last recorded, so this is you know right before and while the tournament has been going on. In chronological order, John, the first thing is that two days before the tournament, Qatar decided to ban beer from the stadium, Mm -hmm. which 
as a conservative country, that was always an issue with Qatar. They did not want right. alcohol to be a prominent part of this tournament. But, or, to, or as the World Cup was leading up, there was an agreement between the royal family of Qatar and FIFA that beer could be sold at the tournament because, in part, FIFA has a massive sponsorship with Budweiser. Mm-hmm. Um, Budweiser paid $74 million to be the official sponsor of beer at this tournament. That's a huge, that's a huge deal. That's a lot of money. And two days before the tournament was supposed to begin, according to reporting by Tarek Panja, who went on the New York Times Daily Podcast, basically what happened is that one of the family members of the royal family was walking around the grounds and saw the big red Budweiser displays and was like, these are ugly. We don't want these. Actually, let's just ban alcohol from the stadiums. <laughs> Two days before the tournament. This has led to... So basically, the only alcohol, the only Budweiser being sold is non-alcoholic Budweiser Zero. Um, huge financial consequences for Budweiser, potential lawsuits for FIFA from Budweiser for breach of their sponsorship. This is a huge deal. And what you and I have talked about, John, off the podcast is just the fact that normally countries are bending over backwards to accommodate FIFA when they host the Mm -hmm. World Cup in basically any way possible. But here, FIFA has been bending over backwards to the whims of Qatar. And it seems like it might cost FIFA in some significant financial ways to have this tournament be in Qatar. Um, Obviously, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to all the bribes that they've gotten from Qatar to have the World (laughs) Cup. But still, a significant story and it just speaks to the lack of certainty going into the tournament that this could happen literally 48 hours before the opening kickoff. So I'm going to say what my my hope out of this specific circumstance is. I hope Budweiser does sue FIFA. I hope FIFA loses the case. And I hope FIFA loses a absolutely titanic amount of money from this case. Because I think this is exactly what FIFA gets for creating the situation in the first place. You should have known when you were giving the World Cup to a country that clearly is in it for itself and is utilizing soft power and bribes to attempt to influence global politics through a sporting event that they are not in it for you or for the sport of soccer. Hmm. Qatar, as we have known from the beginning, is not trying to better the image of the sport. It's not trying to create a tournament that somehow, you know, like brings humanity together, as everyone's been saying. Qatar is using this as the um, the excellent Rest is History podcast that we also listened to covered in their history of Qatar. Qatar is using this to catapult itself onto the world stage in a way that it has not existed on the world stage prior to the last 10 years since they won the host bid. And that is first and foremost what's in the royal family's mind as they've put this tournament together. And they basically hold all the cards right now. There have been numerous other instances too where it just feels like, which we can get into, where it feels like FIFA is backpedaling constantly trying to figure out how to save face while the Qatari government just kind of does whatever it wants Um, as this tournament has continued and it you know it's not good for the tournament it's not good for the qatari people but i feel like fifa is getting what it deserves in taking flack from the press for not being able to control a country that it was never going to be able to control in the first place yeah yeah another big um story that came out 
and uh, again on the subject of FIFA capitulating to the interests of Qatar mm-hmm. um, is you know we knew weeks in advance that there was a group of captains who were going to wear rainbow armbands captains armbands that said one love on them and I don't I don't think this story had happened the last time we did the podcast mm-hmm. I don't think but uh, leading up to the first round of matches FIFA informed the federations of the countries who were going to do this that if their captains took the field wearing rainbow armbands that the captain would be given a yellow card um, a yellow card is a is an on the field discipline and they they are significant because if you get two of them in a single game you're removed from the game if you get a, a certain amount of them in a tournament you can be suspended for a game so like yellow card is a punishment like it's not that's not insignificant that's not a slap on the mm-hmm. wrist those are those are big deals especially for captains who are usually some of the best players on the field and what happened was that the, the captains and the countries capitulated to FIFA. They did not want to take a, a sporting sanction for the stance. Players like Harry Kane, who had initially chosen to wear the armband in light of the situation, chose not to. There's been a lot of debate and criticism about whether or not they should have done it and taken the punishment. Um, I was certainly hoping that maybe they would just to call FIFA's bluff. Mm-hmm. Um, just imagining just how horrible of a look it would be for FIFA to to you know give give a punishment to someone for that and um, you know these are these are armbands that have been in the in the Premier League and domestic leagues these are not uncommon parts of sports so um, and we've done a whole podcast about LGBTQ symbolism in sports and, and mm-hmm. forced speech and things like that and I would um, I would invite anyone to look listen back to that to hear more about our thoughts on on the the merits of the rainbow armband as well as places for religious exceptions and things like that but just in terms of players who wanted to make the statement who who believed that it was a cause that they wanted to support them being banned from doing so has been a controversy um in particular for germany who uh, a, a sponsor of germany threatened to rem- like stop being their sponsor because they were not going to challenge fifa and wear the armband uh, in response to that, Germany has considered suing FIFA um, for financial replications in case they lose their sponsorship. So I, w- I would love to hear what you think about the whole situation. If you think players, you know, could or could have or should have called the bluff, and also again, just how this relates to FIFA and their capitulance to Qatar in almost every aspect. Yeah, I think it's been. It was a weird situation. So, like, the the big kind of flashpoint, obviously, we're pretty well tied into, like, the English media. And the big flashpoint there was that ahead of the first game, you know, Harry Kane, England's captain, did plan on wearing the armband against Iran. And basically, FIFA put out a really weird statement, from what I remember, that kind of didn't... It basically hinted that discipline would be applied to anyone who wore those armbands as opposed to the like kind of mealy-mouthed you know special like FIFA statement armbands that captains were supposed to wear but FIFA didn't really clarify what was going to happen to any of these players like would it be a single yellow card as you walk onto the field would you would there be a potential that if you kept wearing it after the yellow card that he could card you again and send you off like mm-hmm. we had kind of no idea what the situation was going to be and i guess from the from the player side of things like as we talked about throughout this whole tournament and before the tournament you know the question of are the players responsible for social action here i think is it is a big question an interesting question like should these players be willing to jeopardize 
their tournament because FIFA is corrupt. I think it would be a really powerful statement, you know? But I also understand players not being willing to like jeopardize their chances of progressing if you get your star forward sent off in the first round against, you know, a team that you should beat for a social statement. Like, I think it's, again, I think it's a powerful statement if that's your call as a team, if that's what you want to do, if you want to call FIFA's bluff and suffer the consequences if it happens and create the press for the entire tournament about what could have happened if FIFA hadn't acted that way. I think that is a, a stance you can take. But I, I guess I also understand the fact that, as numerous players and coaches have said, you know, it's not the player's fault that this tournament is here. And they ultimately do want to win this tournament. And you are, if FIFA is being corrupt and kowtowing to Qatar, maybe choosing to not jeopardize your team based on FIFA's confusing like stances is understandable. I don't I don't know what I think about that honestly. I've I've kind of been on the fence about that this entire like lead up to this tournament. I don't blame the players at all for choosing ultimately to not wear them. I don't blame them in one bit. Yeah. You we are a podcast with a consistent track record of supporting players speaking out on issues that they care about. We will we will always stand for that. But no one should have like I wouldn't tell a player to take a sporting sanction, a punishment in their sport to make a statement. Right. I wouldn't. Ultimately, your your primary job is to play, and from that comes your platform and your opportunity to speak. Agreed. We we agreed on the last podcast that no one should be forced to take a certain cause. No one. We no one should be forced to to wear a rainbow type thing when the rest of the team does it or be removed from a team if they don't do it we agree that that's wrong but we i think we also agree that your platform to speak on issues you care about comes from the fact that you are an athlete and and like their primary job is to be excellent on the field if if harry kane had done it and he had gotten a yellow card and he had been suspended for the final game against wales and they had somehow lost against wales that would have been a disaster for england literally a disaster and so the counter argument to that is well this cause is more important than the outcome of the game i understand that i respect that but these people are athletes and they're they are they're there to play um they, they are not there only to make a statement and there are people whose jobs it is to make the world a more equitable and fair place and i would recommend that you look at those people in terms of what they do on their job in order to make change happen in the world. The United Nations, uh, other governments, places, FIFA, people like that. Um, (laughs) I agree with you. It would have been a remarkably powerful statement for the cause that they were fighting for if they had. The the image of a FIFA referee giving a yellow card to Harry Kane would -hmm. have been on every single newspaper around the world on the front page. I, I don't know if FIFA would have ever recovered in the West in Western culture from an image like that. In in a pluralistic society that we live in, where we allow differences of opinion, but also allow people to live their lives the way they want to, I I can't imagine how FIFA could have recovered from something like that. And there is part of me that would have liked to have seen what FIFA would have done if they had. But yeah, I I don't blame the players in one bit for choosing not to. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it wouldn't quite have been on the like Olympics fist level, but like it, in the, it's in not the plane, far off. In the plane below that, like, it's there for sure yeah. in terms of iconic sports photos if that happens for social justice. 
Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think the, the, the people we really should be questioning first are the people who are enabling Qatar to, uh, you know, continue to grow on the uh, international scene. And honestly, okay, the the biggest thing I wanted to talk about, and this connects to this, is the presence of Iran at this tournament. Mm. Um, yeah, when, let's talk about this. When we're talking about countries that, you know, are being allowed to basically operate with zero repercussions for their actions. You look at the situation in Iran right now. A young woman was beaten to death by Iranian police. I guess it was like a month ago or something. Yeah, almost at two months At this point, now. almost a month ago. Okay, two months. Was beaten to death by Iranian police for not wearing a hijab or not wearing it correctly or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there have been protests since that point. I was reading an article in the BBC about it. As far as we know, roughly 500 people have died in being killed by the Iranian government. Um, they've been arresting thousands of protesters who are protesting for the rights of women, who are protesting the regime, who are demanding the ousting of Khomeini, the religious leader, the Ayatollah of Iran, um, who's running an incredibly repressive Islamic regime that is pro-terrorism, that represses its own people, that represses women. Um, is funding weapons, is sending weapons to Russia. To Russia, who is banned from this tournament, mm -hmm. right? Russia could have qualified for this tournament. Russia invaded Ukraine and was kicked out of qualification. Meanwhile, Iran is still here. Iran participated in this tournament. While when you have anti-government protesters, the latest report is last night after Iran was ejected from the tournament. Well, not ejected, they, they not lost. Not ejected, after Iran yeah. lost, sorry. After Iran lost they were beaten. and exited, exited the tournament. Exited yeah, is yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Someone was basically like anti-government protesters have been celebrating Iran's exit from the tournament. The police shot someone who was honking their car horn in celebration of Iran exiting the tournament yesterday. And that's how serious things are there. And the fact that Iran is even present here to me is insane. Saudi Arabia, same thing. Saudi Arabia is... It's currently still invading one of its neighbors in committing numerous war crimes in Yemen, bombing civilians, doing all kinds of terrible things. And, you know, I, I think it's incredible that the Iranian players even took the stance to not sing their national anthem in the first game and demonstrate that they do stand with the protesters in their home country. Like, obviously, we don't know where everyone stands in the situation exactly, but the fact that they were willing to take the flack from their own national press is incredible. Um, and I don't, you know, I have nothing against the players, but I do have something against complete inconsistency and the fact that Iran is present in this tournament during this social, current social situation is remarkable and crazy and FIFA is clearly doing nothing about it. Yeah, Sam Borden is an ESPN reporter on the grounds in Qatar. He was on ESPN Daily's podcast with Pablo Torre mm -hmm. yesterday leading up to the Iran-USA game. He mentioned that after the first game in which some Iranian players decided not to wear the anthem, uh, not to sing the anthem, that uh, players were threatened with imprisonment or torture by mm -hmm. the Iranian government when they returned to Iran if they don't step into line in terms of presumably about singing the anthem, um, representing their country well, quote unquote. Um, We've, we've talked in the past about the Russia ban 
uh, from the tournament, how I feel about that, my very, very conflicted feelings about removing a team from an international sporting competition, um, the the slippery slope it creates in terms of which which countries you ban and which you don't, which you just mm-hmm. highlighted. You know, if not Russia, or if Russia, then why not Iran and Saudi Arabia? If Iran and Saudi Arabia, why not other countries? You know, how far does yeah. that line go? Another one of my concerns is what, what, we, what you just said about the players who don't support the government. Why, why are we punishing the players who may or may not disagree, may or may not agree with what the government is doing? Why, why, do, why are athletes being punished instead of the government itself? And again, my third concern, which we talked about at the time, is, well, if you can punish a team for by removing them from a, from a tournament, why can't you reward a team by placing them in the tournament? Like I thought that maybe Ukraine should have been just included in the World Cup. Um, I think didn't it, it's Ukraine, very, very complicated. The whole Ukraine thing suggested, is very complicated. Yeah, Ukraine suggested that they replace Iran, if I remember correctly. That would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. I would have been 100% for that. But again, it is a slippery slope. It um, is. It ultimately, is. Yep. The, the, the USA-Iran rivalry was very very controversial this game on tuesday um it started on social media with the usa social media uh, people i guess they probably consulted with the federation on this but removing the is it the islamic eagle is it an eagle on the flag yeah it's like the symbol so like the 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 colors behind in my understanding are like the the persian flag basically and the islamic republic when they deposed the Shah, is my understanding, in um, the previous century, put that eagle on that like represents the Islamic like totalitarian regime. And so the American accounts took the eagle off to basically have like the Persian flag there again. Yeah, that got a very strong reaction from the Iranian government. It got a very strong reaction from the Iranian head coach. It led to a very, very weird press conference so strange. Uh, between the Iranian journalists and the U.S. players and coaches leading up to the game. The game that, like John said, we won, as you all know, that sent Iran home. Um, it, it's a very, very tough situation. Um, I, I think that there should be a retrospective about why Iran was in this tournament if Russia was not, uh, particularly in regards to the fact that Iran is not only committing similar human rights abuses to Russia, but is actually helping fund Russia's war effort. Mm -hmm. I think one of the major differences is that the Iran war started during qualification, so it was fresh of mind, whereas the Iranian suppression of women has been going on for years, as has the Saudi Arabian war with Yemen that has been going. It is not new news. It's it's just been part of the normal culture for for years now, which we talked about. Yeah. which we talked about during the Russia ban. Um, it's a really complicated issue, but I would have not opposed Iran being removed from the tournament leading up to the World Cup. And mm-hmm. I would not have opposed, to be clear, Ukraine taking their place regardless of merit. <laughs> as a Because, I again, the imagery of Ukraine being at this World Cup would have been hugely significant. It would have been incredible, stage. genuinely. That would have been yeah. awesome. Um I just want to briefly highlight uh, Tyler Adams, who, you know, a lot of the Iranian journalists asked a lot of very strange questions in this press conference, like about American warships in the Persian Gulf and all the kinds of strange things like that. And Greg Berthalter, the American coach, was like, "Uh, I'm a soccer coach. Why are you asking me about that? 
That's kind of weird. Um, but they also, one journalist asked Tyler Adams, who is black, asked him, you know, how do you feel about representing a country in the journalist's words, that's so basically racist and discriminatory against black people. And Tyler Adams basically, you know, sat down without skipping a beat and gave a really well-reasoned and thought-out answer about how he views progress in America on race relations, which is something we've talked about many times on this podcast. And I thought he gave a really well-balanced answer. He talked about how he's lived overseas and how, you know, he's seen discrimination against various people groups everywhere and that's a part of every culture and he you know he just underlined that he basically is proud to uh represent america and you see when you're going down the line and seeing who's singing the national anthem you know tyler was out there belting it along with the loudest of them um so i was i was really proud of him for that answer i also think it's just remarkable that an Iranian journalist has the nerve to ask a player about racism while his country and his government literally is predicated on uh, eradicating every Jew that exists on the face of the planet. I'm like, that's a, that's an unfortunate uh, spot to take a moral high ground on. Um, so that was a little interesting. Yeah, just, just to get a little bit specific <laughs> for people who may not have seen it, basically what happened at this press conference, which I said was weird, which John mentioned some of the questions that were being asked to Greg Bearhalter and, and to Tyler Adams. Basically what happened is there was a coordinated effort by the state-run Iranian media there right. to ask whataboutism questions to the U.S., basically trying to equate U.S. human rights abuses with Iran human rights abuses and trying to ask players to justify why they are at the World Cup and why they're representing their country as the spotlight is on Iran at this moment. This right. is classic whataboutism. We have seen it all throughout history. It is a false moral equivalency. It seemed like it was a coordinated effort by, absolutely was. by journalists from different media organizations who all represented Iran state media to do so. Um, it was gross. And the fact that Tyler Adams could have as measured of a response as he did off the cuff in the moment mm -hmm. with, with no delay was remarkable he is a bright young man and he's an incredible football player and i'm a big fan he he is i think he's won a lot of fans this tournament uh, i think a lot of these players have but him in particular what a what a guy yeah no i've been i've been i've been saying out of all the players at this tournament coming into it tyler adams is one of my favorites but it's just he's underlining it more and more now i yeah. he's such a hard worker and he's a bright young man and he's got a bright future ahead of him I think so. Anything else from the World Cup, John? As we're as we're heading no, into think, the final, I think we I think we hit it all. Yeah, we'll or be back next week, and we'll have you know done the U.S. results um, against Netherlands. We'll have plenty more to talk about. We'll be in the round of sixteen by the time we do our next podcast. Do you think we have time for a little bit on Andor, or do you think we should? I think we, I think we can we can talk about I it real quick. Just real okay. quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Andor finale happened. It did. It happened the, right the day before Thanksgiving. I didn't get around to it until Saturday because of family things. We've talked about Andor. We haven't really talked about it in the detail that we should, but just we haven't had as much time. But we've just talked about how the vibes have been amazing and just rec we've been constantly recommending it. Mm -hmm. But I think I do want to talk a little bit specifically about the finale in terms of just the way that it somehow was suspenseful while also we knew the outcome. Mm -hmm. Because the entire point of the finale was that there were multiple people there, spoilers for Andor, to kill Cassian right. on both sides. 
the Empire and the Rebellion both wanted to get Andor out of the way. And we know that Andor was not going to die that day. In fact, right. we know that he won't die for four more years because it's a, it's a prequel of a movie that we've already seen that he's in. And somehow, Tony Gilroy and the writers and the directors still managed to create tension and make this episode of like a, a genuine thriller. A not it's not quite a, it's not a heist, thriller, but it's, it's like a it's like a manhunt thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just thought it was remarkable that they could create tension about an outcome that we already knew. And it shows how this type of show can exist in the sense that it's it's looking in both directions. It's looking forward at what we already know is coming. It's looking back at the past and it's existing in its own lane that is somehow both familiar and completely new. And I, a lot of the critics that I listen to uh, have it in their top two or three shows of the year. Mm-hmm. It's in my top two or three shows of the year. I, I think it's a perfect 10, John. I think it's a perfect 10. Um, and I would just love to hear hear your thoughts on the finale. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we're talking about fandom shows of the year, I mean, I, I've enjoyed Andor more than Rings of Power. And Rings of Power yeah. wasn't, like, bad by any means. But but for me, Andor is, like, a clear step above, um, mm-hmm. which I, I did not expect that at all coming into the year 2022. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's done almost everything, like, nearly perfectly which like for a star wars show is incredible i unquestionably think it's the best show that disney plus has put out Mm -hmm. um like without a shadow of a doubt it tony gilroy has done such a just an excellent job like i thought about it when i watched the finale and i was like i may just start the show over again Mm. (laughs) like like the various like uh, that may be a christmas project that happens because i just i enjoyed it so much there's so much depth to it i feel like i there's like content richness to it that I feel like I missed things probably in terms of like the politics stuff that was happening throughout the show that I feel like, you know, like that's not something that normally happens with Star Wars where you're like, oh, there's all these little like intricacies that I like have to make sure I keep up with in terms of like plot dynamics and politics and whatnot. Um, that was just, it was just remarkable and or like Cassie and Diego Luna did a great job in establishing his character and the surrounding cast also just all just such a phenomenal job episode 10 i think has ended up being the best episode for me of the show by far um and it was it was just one of the best episodes of television i've i've watched in in a quite a long time i think the finale for me didn't quite because i had such like a high bar from 10 the finale for me didn't quite hit those like same notes i think it was it was a good episode but it it wasn't like a great episode to me necessarily um but the the one highlight for me that i really i loved about the finale the scene with the like basically the riot that happens on ferrix is something that we've never seen in star wars before and it just felt so real like the reality of the empire trying to manage a protest in a very 21st century way that feels so relevant with what's happening in Russia in in Iran right now with repressive governments controlling their people. Mm. You know, it just, it felt so like just applicable and you realize, you know, it's, I mean, it's a theme that's happened throughout history, but the challenges of not just fighting like a galactic rebellion led by Leia and Han Solo and whatever, but the challenge for the empire of controlling people on the ground 
and keeping a populace in fear was something that we haven't really seen like the nuts and bolts of that um, in Star Wars up to this point. And I thought that was just it was such a cool look at a moment like that, that I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I, I mean, if we had, if we were a Star Wars podcast, there's so many questions I would want to ask. <laughs> so like, <many. laughs> like where is B2 email on your droid power ranking right now? And, um, and, and, you know, like is, is we could rank the four or five great monologues speeches in this show. There's like, there's at least four or five of them. But I, I think what I'll just say is Tony Gilroy did a trilogy of interviews with this podcast called The Watch from the Ringer Podcast Network. Um, as the show's coming out, he did three interviews. And in the final one, he talked about what you just said about the theme of authoritarianism and how it is something that, and I think I said this at the beginning when we did our first episode about Andor in episode six after we finished Rings of Power, which is just the idea that Andor... The, the, the themes of authoritarianism, whether you experience them in your life today, and they certainly do exist in the world today, that theme and that character type, uh, archetype, is such a staple of history that we can all recognize it. You, and like I said, you, I think what I said earlier is that you could place Andor in, you could place it in ancient, in the Empire of Rome, you could mm-hmm. place it in Nazi Germany, you could place it in North Korea today. It is a show that you could, the thematically, you could dump into 20 different settings and it would make perfect sense. And so it was sci-fi Star Wars, but it was also a distinctly familiar human experience that, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi just can't do. Just, it just can't do it like this. That's just objectively true. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what I have to say. I, those are, it was a good, The Watch mm-hmm. does a nice job especially their interviews with Gilroy have been very interesting. So I just, yeah. uh, I just queued those in my, uh, my podcast queue. Um, the only thing I want to say to finish this off is I really love um, Stellan Skarsgård characters, character Luthen mm-hmm. has, and I think ended up being my favorite character in the show. Um, I do love Kino, Andy Circus, but Skarsgård's dude, I don't know. He just like, like every show like has a soul you know and like luthan is like the soulless soul of this show in a sense that mm. you feel like a lot of like the story's force is revolving around him obviously like, it is centered on cassian but you, a lot of the moments of like the rebellion growing hinge on luthan's decision making clearly as he's kind of like the leader of the whole thing right now um and his i, I don't know his monologue may stand out for me ultimately as like the defining moment of this season yeah quite frankly the, the more he, i think about it he's the moral complexity of the show mm-hmm, for sure and that's important in this kind of show yeah you i know, think it when, provides a lot of depth the the moment with saw Gerrera and not the finale but the the penultimate episode where you know he's just gonna let 31 men die to protect his source and saw's like you know, you could see the fear that Luthen has because you could see Saw thinking, well, like, if he's going to do that to this guy, will he do it to me? Mm-hmm. You could just see the the fear of the ruthlessness of Luthen impacting all over the rebellion. He's He is the one making the tough decisions, the moral complexities. He's like, he's the anti-hero. Yeah, he's the character absolutely. that you, you end up liking, but you really don't know if you should. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an awesome 
TV character to have. It's what makes Game of Thrones special. It's what makes lots of shows like that special. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellence. Excellence across the board. It was so good. I I loved Andor so much. John, we need to get going here because we're only we 30 minutes away from the next uh, round of kickoffs here. <laughs> We've got the, the 2 p.m. slate coming up, so... I need to get yep. give us time to to get settled in the in the more soccer. That is correct, and it's going to be a lovely time. Yeah, um, we'll be back. Like I said, next week, hope probably mid next week with another podcast. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, any any final thoughts before we get on out of here, John? Go USA! We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna beat the oranges. We're gonna we're gonna crush them. <laughs> we are going to make some orange juice on Saturday. Can you imagine more clashing colors? than if we no. were red and they were orange. They're like, they can't do that. <laughs> that would be so the, color, <laughs> the colorblind community. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really, really gross. That'd be really bad. Anyway, um, yeah, anyway, we're out of here. Enjoy the games the rest of this weekend. And until next week, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe. And we'll talk to you later. All right, cheers, guys. Cheers.